the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Clan Corval Constellation coalesces into crystalline chronicles of quality, a dog's body, and the joy of fracking, plus part 18 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Coming up, we have an interview with Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. These are the co-creators of the Leaden Universe, the novel set in that world, and a new Leaden short story collection called A Leaden Universe Constellation, Volume 1. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. But first, a bit of news. I want to highlight the free fiction and nonfiction that is on the Bain.com website this month. We have at least one short story and one hard-hitting and or fascinating nonfiction piece new each and every month. These come on the 15th and they are absolutely free. Plus, they don't disappear after a new story or article is posted. Not at all. You can get all of these stories and the articles in two ebook compendiums at BainEbooks.com. To get to them, you can search on BainEbooks.com for free nonfiction or free short stories, or go to the podcast forum at Bainsbar and follow the links we have there. This is good stuff. The fiction is usually by authors that have books out at booksellers or about to come out. And the nonfiction is often by scientists, military historians, Bane writers with a bone to pick, or all of the above. This month we have Dog's Body by Sarah A. Hoyt. This is a story set in her Shifter series, specifically in Goldport, Colorado, the town that appears in her new book, Noah's Boy. The free nonfiction is a great piece by science fiction author, American thinker-editor, and military historian J.R. Dunn. It's called Fracking and the American Comeback. It's a strong argument that the practice of extracting oil from shell by hydraulic fracturing is in the process of changing the strategic balance of power in profound ways for America and for the world. You can find both of those articles right there on the front page at Bain.com, so have a gander. Today we have with us authors of the Leoden Universe novels and many others, Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Hi, Sharon and Steve. Hi, Tony. Hi there, Tony. Uh, Sharon Lee and Steve Miller began co-authoring their tales of the Leoden. Is it Leoden or Leoden? It's Leoden. Leoden Universe, 25 years ago. The series went through a number of publishers until Bain Books saw a wonderful opportunity to reissue the series and to ask Sharon and Steve to write more Leaden Universe novels. For the past few years, they've done exactly that with Leaden novels Fledgling, Saltation, Mouse and Dragon, Ghost Ship, Dragon Ship, and upcoming Trade Secret, which will be in print in November. 
And there's even more. The previous Leaden Universe novels that Sharon and Steve have written, which seem to be as many as the stars sometimes, have been collected into omnibus editions by Bain, such as Crystal Variation, Dragon Variation, and others. You can find them all on the Bain website, of course, and at BainEbooks.com. And finally, there's what we are talking about today. Bain is now issuing the collected short stories of the Leaden Universe in two omnibus trade paperback volumes. These are those cool uh, 5x7-inch omnibus editions that are handy for getting a grip on even when they have lots and lots of contents in them, which these do. These collections are called A Leaden Universe Constellation Volume 1 and Volume 2. Volume 1 is now out and at booksellers everywhere. Now, Sharon and Steve, the Leaden Universe is a wide and wonderful science fiction setting that y'all have developed for telling a, a huge range and types of tales. I'm reminded of things like William Faulkner's Yachtnipatawpha County or, or Heinlein's Future History as other examples. Can you explain a bit what this world is like and maybe tell us about the genesis of it all? Well, the genesis of it all was um, the first line of a novel called Agent of Change, um, which is the man who was not caring so great he had come quietly. Um, and I brought that to Steve and said, um, I have a novel. And Steve said, no, you have seven novels. Um, but the... You're, you're asking for the building blocks of the Leaden universe, and that would be looking to Lord Peter Whimsey and also to Georgette Hare. We had, uh, when we sat down, and we literally did start the whole process from that single sentence that Sharon had spent a, most of a day writing while I was off to a, a chess tournament, I believe. Uh, what happened is that uh, what happened is that Sharon came to me with this. Uh, sentence, and we looked at it, and really quickly, I, I said that no, this isn't a uh, a single novel. This is this is probably a, a series. And we sat down that night and looked over it and said, okay, here's probably seven seven novels, and we actually charted out the possibilities of those seven novels in that first evening. In fact, Sharon, I think skipped skipped work the next day because we we were up all night. Uh, we didn't come out with exactly those books, but in the end with exactly the books we had first proposed. But what we had understood was that there were things that we wanted to do. Now, Sharon mentioned uh, Lord Peter Whimsey and George Ed Hare. Uh, now, when you say that you're talking about the, the tone of, the of say, the Whimsey books, the Sayers' wonderful uh, ability to catch dialogue and character... Well, we're, we're talking about the tone, and we're also talking about the fact that, that Hare was, was essentially writing an alien contact novel. <laughs> over and over again, yes, she was. And she has, Georgette Hare has the best ability she, of any other writer I've ever um, read. You, she can have a character walk into the room. She can t give you six words, and you know everything about him. It's just amazing, and I wish I could do it. Um, but we, we have wanted to emulate that kind of uh, that kind of fun in what we were doing, and we were also trying to do something that and had were consciously aware of that we wanted to have a universe that was more than just technical uh, detail of well if you were familiar with the old analog and some of the old analog, the whole story was not much more than a physics joke with a punchline of, and so I knew that if I applied X equals M squared or whatever, that this is what was going to happen. 
And we wanted more than that. So that's what we were working with. And it's one of the axioms. It's one of, we've both also been newspaper reporters. And one of the things that they tell you in newspaper is that um, news is what happens to people. And that comes right over to fiction. Fiction, you know, stories happen to people. Um, so the basis of the leading universe is people. Um, yeah, the, the that's the. I mean, the great thing about the novels is that they follow these compelling character storylines. They aren't primarily always about the stakes of the entire galaxy every time. Um, it seems to me that uh, maybe you decide your storylines based on which set of characters you want to concentrate on at time. How how do you decide what the the current crop of Leaden novels or stories is going to be? We wait until a character walks into our head. That sounds bizarre. Thankfully, we're writers, so people don't go, you know, you, you can get that fixed. Um, and and there's a, another another thing that happened is that we had, an, initially, we had seen us, us, I hate to use the phrase, since we started before the phrase became uh, regularly used, uh, the story arc um, idea. Uh, I, I had been at... Um, Roger Zelazny's house when he got a phone call confirming that he had sold the Amber series. And at that point, there, had, there were nobody, nobody was doing series that way, uh, that where they would sell seven or eight books at once. And that had sort of brought me into this whole, this whole idea of uh, story arc and uh, longer things. So we have an idea of where we want whole sets of of things to go because it, it makes sense from almost from a an Asimovian standpoint, but then the individual people within that uh, we're not set on, and so we don't know necessarily of how we're going to be dealing with this problem. We just know that this problem is going to be there. And it's basically a question of all right, we have this problem. What kind of character would get into this kind of trouble? What kind of person would would be tinkering around with this, and this would blow up in their face? Um, we do occasionally write side novels that don't deal with the mainline characters, and Necessity's Child, which didn't make it into the list of new books, um, was one of those. We, oh, I left that out. Sorry. Yes. Okay. Um, That's the I, latest. I just happened to want to write a, sto- a story about a hidden society, and a new a new batch of characters in the Leiden universe. So, But the Leiden universe is a big place, so you can, you can play with that. You can add new people in if you need to or want to. Well, a lot of these. Uh, let's concentrate on uh, a Leiden universe constellation, the the collection. A lot of these are also um, stories about characters that that are secondary characters in some of the novels. Is that true? That's true. And you, and it's it, it's not only true that they're secondary characters in the novels. In some cases, the uh, some cases are the main characters. They're, and- they're, they're the main characters, or they're they're. Uh, illustrating points that we couldn't reasonably put into a novel. If we were writing, uh, if we were writing six hundred thousand word novels or whatever the Game of Thrones books are, four hundred thousand words or something, then yes, we could put all of these stories in. But we came from uh, a tradition. Both of us came from a tradition of uh, ace doubles and stories that you could you could read in. A good reader should be able to read our books in a single sit-down or over, an, over a single evening. And uh, somebody who's under time constraints should be able to get through our novels in oh, 03 readings. But that doesn't mean that these stories aren't useful, uh, that they're not 
that they shouldn't be amplified. It's just sometimes there's no room for them in the novels, and we'll see it going by and think, okay, this needs to be expanded. But it, it, it would slow the flow of the whole book if we tried to put all of that stuff in, because we want the books to have a good, strong, uh, the novels to have a fast flow. Yeah. Well, these, I mean, but the stories in the collection don't read as, as excerpts. You didn't, I mean, you've really crafted them into stories that stand on their own as well. Um, they, they better stand on their own. Yes. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's the point, is to put them into the novel uh, would, in, would, in effect, uh, have people herring off in, in uh, mixed directions. And uh, so we try not to, uh, we want to be able to concentrate on people uh, on, on a situation without it uh, stealing away from, again, that thrust of the, the, the novel's um, energy. And one of the examples, actually, in the Aiden Universe, um, Constellation One, is a choice of weapons, which is a duel to um, first blood with water balloons. Um, and we had had the story, we had had the idea of a water balloon duel for years, for years. It was supposed to have gone into a novel at one point, but we didn't have the right character. We thought maybe Valkon would do it, but Valkon's far too serious to do, to do a water balloon duel. Um, so it just, the idea just sort of kicked around until we finally said, oh, you know, I know who would do that. And we needed to find somebody who would have the, the correct sense of irony and, uh, know when, when, when such a weapon would be, uh, would be best used. And, and would be more devastating than pistols. Right. He's, trying to, he's got a dual purpose in that duel. He's trying to preserve two different... Uh, he has to fight it, but he's trying to preserve two different uh, imperatives. It's a great scene. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it, I mean, it's funny, but it also comes off as very, you know, it's very germane to the story that he must do this this way. It's a wonderful little tale. And, and that is, in, in essence, that's, that comes out of the, the Georgette Hare uh, approach to, to culture, and that was uh, part of what we wanted the whole, the whole time, the, the universe, the Leiden universe, to be able to have access to uh, some, some things of wit. Uh, we, we see far too many novels that are, that are, they seem to be based only on physical force. They, they, you know, we're going to solve this all by blowing a hole in them. And no, no, that, that's not how you solve everything. Well, one of the one of the great things about the collection is that it includes several interconnected stories featuring the same central characters, and we see them at different stages in their lives and and development. Um, and we see several of the men and women who will become extremely powerful leaders of uh, the Leaden clan, Corval which is uh, sort of our central clan in the Leiden universe, uh, when they're kids and when they're young adults, uh, get glimpses of these, these characters. I particularly like the Pat Wren, uh, Yosphalium. How do we say his name? Patrin Yosphalium. Yeah. Uh, for Corval Sion, uh, he's a bit of a player, I would say. I particularly enjoyed A Certain Symmetry, which is this wonderful quest to fulfill a, uh, a final balance sheet, a sort of last will of a... Of a important Leaden fellow who has uh, committed suicide. Now, this is a mystery, right? So this is an example of how you can tell different genres within the, the Leaden universe as well. Well, that's why it's a universe. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the thing is, is that uh, Patron has started off in a, <clears throat> in a bad situation, and I don't want to, to uh, overexpose it because it's central to several <laughs> novels as well as some other short stories. But he, he started off in a, a sort of awkward situation, and um, 
in his social position because he's not going to to be able to make a run for uh, easily to make a run for the uh, for the top dog of the of the clan and at the same time is uh, he, he's He's a Yosphelium. He has to do something. He, yeah, he has to do something. Yeah. And uh, we have this concept called Malanti that we use in the Leiden universe, and it's sort of your uh, your social status at any one time in a room. If you walk into a room and there's three servants there and seven people of various stages of other rank, you should know exactly where you are at all times. If you turn around and you walk outside and one of those servants is fixing your, your, has to fix your car for you, and you, you're in a different position then. And if you, it's it's a very complex way weighing at all at all times. And Patron's Malanti is strained by his own uh, ethical sense that he doesn't want to be given things. He doesn't want to be just the the, the playboy. Um, Right, yeah. and so yes, and 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 that sort of informs his 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 whole lifestyle and his whole choice. And the other thing in in Leiden culture, which certain symmetry um, works into, is the whole concept of balance. Leiden, the Leiden ideal is that we should always be in balance with the universe and with our society at all times. And what Patron has gotten in certain symmetry is is this gentleman's debt book, which lists out the things that he has not yet worked balance, gotten to be balanced in his life, um, people that he owes things to and people who owe him things. And in order for him to um, rest easily, so to speak, um, those things have to be put right um, after his death and, and in a certain time limit after his death. And Patron has been has been asked to do that, which is a great honor, and it's also a, a great... Uh, <laughs> and it, it's also a, a great pressure... And how well he performs this particular act, set of actions that need to happen also affects his Malanti. People will see how honorable is he by how well did he perform this duty. Per yes. perform this duty. So it's a very complex situation for him. Well, there's a, Pat Ryan is a is a I mean he's a great character because he's not a good pilot as he should be and or or any and he's trying to find his place here and it allows him to interact with different levels of the society the way other characters don't necessarily so he comes in contact with gamblers and and shifty characters and such and especially in this story. Yes, exactly, and and that's uh, one of the things that we've been able to to do over time is to get. Uh, to get the, a wider range of culture, you don't have everybody always dealing with the, the top line of command or something. In which case, we, we have, in that, we depart from the Georgette Hare, where we're only going to tell stories about the, the 500. I think it is the 500 top people of the town. Um, we, we like to we like to explore Lowport, and we like to explore the various other um, mid-clans and um, just regular people. There's yeah, there's plenty of stories with characters that are not Corval clan members, and uh, and the clans have their own hierarchy uh, hierarchy among them. That's that's really fascinating. Um, to go back one more time to Pat Wren, uh, that story heirloom or heirloom at near the end of the collection about a twelve year old uh, teenage girl who suddenly comes into a sort of psychic power of is uh, Dromlisa. Mm -hmm. Am I saying that right? Then. Oh, and, yes. 
she steps onto this ancient handwoven rug and and sort of has a vision. Can you tell us? And we see these sort of mental powers displaying themselves in other Leaden universe stories. Um, how do these uh, fit in the prophecy and the healing? How do these fit into the universe? Well, you have to understand that the other things that we were reading growing up as baby writers and as um, just readers were the old science fiction stories back when psychic powers were science before you know, we decided that, no, that's fantasy. And since we are invoking the old space opera sense of wonder very deliberately in the Leiden universe, we decided that, yes, psychic powers were going to play a part in this. Um, they're not, again, they are not, as, as the megaton weapon, they're not a heel-wall. Um, they're not, they're very, they have rules. Yeah, and they can come back and bite you, as they do in this story. And come back and bite you, yes, yeah. very much. You know, with great power comes um, great um, reluctance to use it. Yeah. Um, but we we very deliberately made the made the decision that yes, we were going to incorporate the old um, the, the old psychic powers into the League universe. Well, that's a that one, heirloom is a very touching story. And speaking of these powers of mental healing. Um, Another in witchcraft, in a you know witchcraft as seen by primitive societies. There's this group of stories that are set in almost a fantasy world on a on a planet where people don't know that they're on a planet, etc. With um, Moonhawk and Loot, who are kind of, kind of archetypal character archetypal characters, yet they are connected to the Leiden universe. They're how how are they connected, and how do the Moonhawk tales fit into the Leiden universe? Well, it's it's. It, it's fun um, for us because we, we've been seeing this from the beginning and from and from the outside. Uh, the fact is is that the Moonhawk tales that that happen in the Leiden universe are a leftover from the uh, universe that got dissolved for the Leiden universe to to exist. And this this is in in story talk, so that um, there is a there. With whatever we have now, I think it's 18 books in, in the universe. It, if somebody's not aware, uh, there are several novels that take place before the planet Liad is actually founded. Uh, this, the situation is more than galaxy spanning. spanning. It, it, it spans several universes. And the uh, amount of energy and trauma that that destroys the universe and permits another one to be uh, inhabited uh, has a lot of leftover has a lot of leftover uh, psychic energy in effect, and the characters Loot and Moonhawk are leftovers, in essence, leftover if spirits, if you will, um, souls, uh, impulse from the original, and uh, it, it's actually for me it, it's a lot of fun because. There's some physics involved in it, and it's partly the the physics of entanglement, which is uh, these days they find out you know if you have you can make two two uh, particles have the exact same spin and then separate them, and they will continue to have the same spin. And if you reverse the spin of one of them, wherever it is in the universe, the other one will also reverse. Well, so it's a wonderful uh, set of stories, and it it had a, it has an Andre Norton feel to it as well to me. Well, yeah. excellent, excellent. excellent. Um, we we um, we both admire Andre's work. In fact, 
Andre Norton wrote to me after my first story came out and told me how glad she was that I was writing and and um, how nice it was that and and I was I was really startled. But we had been in in contact with Andre Norton for I guess the last fifteen or twenty years of her life, and uh, so I'm glad to hear that that it has that feel to it. Oh sure. Now, one of my favorite stories, my personal favorites in the collection, is the excellent story Changeling. And this is a story that revolves around sort of the darker side of the Leiden clans, which is their 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 adherence to this protocol. It's almost Viking-like in its ruthlessness. Um, and this is a story where they cast somebody out, and it's somebody who really may not deserve it, Renzel uh, de Juden. He becomes dead to his clan. At first, even in the story, it's like, well, are they really going to kill him? But they do something that's even almost worse than killing him. Can you, uh, and really, a lot of the powerful stories in here revolve around these Leiden customs that, that you're able to, uh, to pull stories out of. Can you elaborate on Leiden customs and how they work in this story? Well, in this story um, in particular, I had um, come across at one point the, the Quaker custom of shunning someone. Um, that if you've done something that has outraged the community so much, um, you're shunned. No one will speak to you. No one will trade with you. And it's terrible. I mean, the Quakers are, are so gentle. And and then this, this terrible punishment. Um, and that's actually the <clears throat> what happens to Renzel. He's shunned. He's, he's declared dead to his clan. He's declared, he's declared, declared clan-less. And in the Leiden society, if you do not belong to a clan, you can't deal. You cannot deal with other Leidens. You have no Melanti. And Leidens don't deal. That's one of the big problems between Leidens and Terrans is that Terrans don't have Melanti. They don't understand it. They they think it's kind of stupid. Um, and they they um, basically get by by interpreting it as honor. Okay, so don't. But it's, it's as we discussed, more than that. So Renzel manages to um, become dead to his clan. He becomes clanless, and now he has to survive on a Leiden world where no Leidens will, will deal with him at all. And as a matter of fact, he has a debt on his he still owes for his piloting um, training. And when he goes down to the trade hall to say, I need work because I have to pay off my debt, they cancel the debt. Just to get him out of there. Just to get him out of there. So he is... He, he, he is alive, and he does have a network. In this case, of he does have a network of contact with some Terrans, and the Leadens are having a hard time there because they can't uh, they can't enforce that Terrans, who they admit have no Melanti, will act properly in this situation. But the thing, and Renzel um, doesn't give up his Leadenness, as it were. I mean, he still feels you know he still sticks to his honor. Um, as well as he can. He doesn't suddenly think, oh, I've been treated horribly and fairly. He, he deals with the situation. Oh, no, he knows he's, he knows he's dead. Yeah. And he doesn't yeah. expect anything else from other Leadens except that, yes, he's dead. Um, however, he, he can work, and he does, does work, finally, because he's not a quitter. Yeah, and he's also a, a brilliant pilot. So there's that. <laughs> he's... <laughs> Uh, the another great tale in here is balance of trade, uh, which is about Terran Jethri, who uh, who does a trade that involves a, a guarantee from a Leaden, and we get more about the protocol about how you you can always depend on a Leaden's word in a trade. Now, there's a Leaden universe with that title as well. Is this novella um, part of that book? Yes, 
uh, actually what happened is that uh, we were given an opportunity from oh uh, Warren Lapine had come to us and said uh, I have I think it was absolute magnitude he was he was editing at the time he said I love your guys stuff but I can't I can't print a whole book do you have a story um, that I can you know for for whatever and we had been thinking about uh, a couple of different characters but Sharon had particularly had this character that that kept coming in and saying, hey, don't forget, I'm out here, I'm out here, and we had no place to put him. And you really need to tell the Lee Hayden story from a Terran point of view. <laughs> and so um, the story the story came out uh, because we wanted to have that, that Terran side, and Sharon had had this character, character running around said, here I am. And um, that that happened, and then the story came out. It was uh, had a couple of nominations. People liked it. It was... Um, Oh, good. We we liked the story, but we realized that we kept getting messages from people. When are you going to finish this? Yeah, whatever happened to Jeffrey? I mean, you just can't leave him alone on, on, on well, the he's just, ship. He's such an identifiable character. He's 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 a young man coming of age, and we like him so much, and and we see him making mistakes, and we're like, don't do that, Jeffrey. Yeah, no, stop. <laughs> well, and what happened is that uh, in fact there was more story there, and that became balance of trade. And we have just turned in Trade Secret, which is the follow-on, because, again, people finished Balance of Trade and said, that's really great, that's really great, but what happens next? And when there's a certain amount of demand for what happens next, it means probably something else can happen there. Yeah, for, t- for 10 years, I think I kept saying, but it's a standalone novel, and they're like, no, 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 it's not. <laughs> Well, I want to mention one other uh, story that I think was just a beautifully moving tale, which was uh, Sweetwaters. And this is uh, a story about a Leaden scout who has been, who's, who's crash landed, it seems, on a primitive planet. And he's waiting around for rescue and he falls in with the locals and um, just trying to survive, gets married and um, he has a wonderful relationship, and but things come between them, and it's just—I mean—it's a moving, heartbreaking uh, tale. But where is the? Why are there people on this planet, and why can he? And why don't they know about the? Where does this planet fit into the Leaden universe? In other words, I was interested in that while I was reading it. Okay, Steve had been talking about the diaspora. Is that how you say that? Diaspora. That happens. That's. That happened before the Leaden universe, as we know it now, what we're calling the present day Leaden universe. Mm-hmm. And the books that address that are Crystal Dragon and Crystal Soldier. And what happened when the two universes kind of collided is that people and ships and planets came through at a whole different rate. And what this is is a planet that has kind of, or people who have just come through, and they've lost all their technology. And they've lost not quite all their technology, because the grandmother, if you'll remember, was not at all surprised. Oh, yes, you came from the um, star field. So she has something. She has a story or something that she's not totally surprised that this man has fallen out of the sky. Yeah. Well, it's it's really really a a touching tale, and... uh, as as are many in these, you know, they're funny, they're touching... um, and uh, it just runs the gamut. It's a great collection. The book is A Leaden Universe Constellation, Volume 1. It is a wonderful collection that can be read on its own and might even be used as an introduction to the very deep and wide storyline of the Leaden Universe novels. 
Uh, it's out now at booksellers everywhere. And really want to thank authors Sharon Lee and Steve Miller for being with us today. Thank you, folks. Thank, thank you, Tony. Thanks for getting <laughs> Thanks through for to us pers- here. Persevering, yes. <laughs> we finally did it. Yay. Thanks so much. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles, including many Bane titles, when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore has defeated one long-standing enemy, the Havenites, and reached a truth with another menace, the ancient aristocratic Salarian League. The Salarian League is crumbling, and on the edge of its empire, rebellion is brewing. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Henke, Countess Goldpeak, commands the Royal Manticoran Navy forces in the Talbot Quadrant. This is a region allied with the Star Kingdom and on the border of the restive frontier of the Salarians. Goldpeak sympathizes with the rebels, but wants to be careful that whatever help she supplies is in a time and place of her own choosing, not that of her enemies. Now, in the Saltash system, that chance may have arrived. With the help of Salarian battle cruisers, the system governor has impounded Manticoran merchant ships in a deliberate act of provocation, hoping to ambush any RMN forces dispatched to investigate. But Royal Manticoran Navy Commodore Jacob Savala, leading a Manticoran Navy destroyer squadron, has dashed those hopes with a devastating and deadly display of martial and technological superiority, and his ships approach orbit above the governor's seat all but uncontested. Here is Part 18 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. Chapter 13 You have another calm request from Captain Zavala, sir. Maxence Kodu's voice was hushed, his expression stunned, and Damian Duenas knew his own expression was as shocked as his assistant's. The governor looked across his office at Cicely Tielakanen. She stood turned away from the window now, looking back at him, brown eyes wide. Then she gave herself a shake, like a cat emerging from water. My God, Damien, she said softly. Now what do we do? Duenas fought down a sudden mad urge to scream at her. How the hell did he know what they did now? This couldn't be happening. Dubrovskaya had been confident. She'd promised him that she could easily defeat less than half a dozen Manti light cruisers. Of course he'd taken his senior naval officer's estimate at face value. This wasn't his fault. His parents had grown up on a farm planet. He'd always been faintly embarrassed among his more sophisticated colleagues by his sodbuster origins and his parents' parochial turns of speech. Yet he understood one of his mother's favorite clichés at last— because there was no other way to describe it as his mind skittered around like Elisabetta Duenas's cow on ice, trying to grasp the immensity of the disaster which had just overwhelmed his career. There had to be some way to salvage the situation. There always was. But how? I... he began, 
then realized he was just sitting there behind his desk with his mouth hanging open, waiting for words which refused to come. We're going to have to release their freighters, Teela Kanan said. No! The single word jerked out of him without conscious thought, and Teela Kanan's lips tightened. We don't have a choice, she said harshly. The man's a lunatic. We can't take a chance on what he'll do next if we don't let them go. No, Duaneus repeated, and his palms smacked down on his desk. I'm not going to let some neobar prick push the Solarian League around. I don't give a damn who he thinks he is. Damian, he just took out four battlecruisers. You think the destroyers we've got left are going to phase him? He wouldn't dare. Damn it, what universe are you living in? Tila Kanan stared at him. There were 8,000 spacers on those battlecruisers, and he just blew them the hell away. He may be crazy, but based on his actions to date, don't you think we'd better assume he's willing to go right on doing exactly what he said he'll do? He won't. Duenia shook his head stubbornly. It's one thing to attack warships, Sicily, but there's no way he'd dare to attack the civilian infrastructure of a star system under the League's protection. He knows what we'd do to his pissant star empire if he did anything like that. You're delusional, Tila Kanan said flatly. You watch your tongue, Lieutenant Governor Tila Kanan, Duenia snapped. All right. Her voice was tight, but she nodded choppily. You're the governor, sir, and this is your plan. So you tell me why you think he won't escalate this to whatever level he thinks he has to to get what he wants. I already did, he grated. The Mantis are trying to sell themselves to the rest of the galaxy as the innocent victims of the peace. The plucky little guy willing to stand up against the big bad bully of the Solarian League. God knows they've been telling anyone who'd listen how all of those poor, oppressed citizens of the Talbot Cluster begged for admission into the Star Empire and whining about the way they've been forced to defend themselves to protect their citizens. They may think they'll be able to sell that load of bullshit as far as confrontations with the Navy are concerned, but as soon as they start inflicting civilian casualties, all their noble innocence goes right out the damn window, and they know it. I think you're wrong. Tia Lacanen's tone was flatter than ever, and she locked gazes with him. I think this Zavala's not going to take any crap, Damian. And I think he just showed us exactly why we better not try to hand him any more of it. You know as well as I do that he's got you dead to rights on the provisions of the Treaty of Beowulf. We're in the wrong under interstellar law. You know that as well as I do, and he's going to push it however far and hard he has to to get what he was sent here to get. And after he does, the Mantis are going to tell the entire galaxy that whoever got hurt along the way, it was our fault. No! She maintained Locke with his eyes, both of them ignoring Kodu as he watched them from Duaneus's calm. Silence hovered for several seconds. And then, finally, Teela Kanan drew a deep breath. You're going to insist on turning this into a complete disaster, aren't you? She said almost conversationally. His jaw muscles tightened, but she went on in that same calm tone before he could respond. Well, 
I can't stop you. As you just pointed out, I'm only the lieutenant governor, and you've got the authority to do whatever you want to do. But I'm going on record now, officially, as recommending we give the Mantis what they want and don't provoke them into killing anyone else. I won't be a party to any more insanity. You'll follow my instructions, Duena snapped. Oh, no, I won't. She shook her head. You've gotten enough people killed for one day, you and Dubrovskaya between you. I'm not going to help kill any more of them, and before you go charging off to make things even worse, I recommend you think about what Zavala told you in the beginning. McCartney's going to want your head for a paperweight already. You really want to make him more pissed off at you? Under the surface of Duenas's rage and panic, a little voice whispered that Tila Kanan was right. It would be insane of Zavala to push the League even harder, but he'd already demonstrated the extent of his craziness, and the rest of the friggin' Mantis were just as crazy as he was. This was all because of his sister's letter, he thought now. Given the system's isolation and the slowness with which interstellar news moved, Saltash was almost completely out of the loop. But Duenas's sister had married a senior assistant undersecretary of the interior, and her last gossipy letter, outpacing official correspondence, as private mail had a tendency to do, had mentioned rumors the Star Empire might recall its merchant fleet from Solarian shipping lanes. That would have been a blatantly hostile act, an economic act of war, really, against the entire League, and he'd found it difficult to believe even the Mantis might do something like that. But then he'd realized they really might, and that because of Manuela's letter, he probably knew something the Mantis out here didn't know yet themselves. That was the starting point of his entire strategy, to act boldly on the information Fortune had given him and preempt the Mantis' plans. By moving quickly, proactively, he'd managed to stop the Carolyn and Argonaut before their ship's companies had a clue what was happening, and then Dubrovskaya's battlecruisers had turned up, like a gift from God himself, to supplement the miserable trio of destroyers he'd expected to have on hand. He'd been perfectly positioned to demonstrate that the League wasn't going to stand for such blatant economic aggression without retaliating, and to draw the Mantis into showing their true colors, and then forcing them to back down in the face of Solarian resolution and strength. Which would just happen to make the career of one Damian Duenas in the process. And he'd been right, he told himself. He'd been right all along about what the Mantis were really like, and Zavala's actions here in Saltash proved it. He just hadn't realized how insanely far they were prepared to go, and Dabrowskaya's clumsy and complete incompetence had let the Mantis get in another lucky and treacherous blow. But that wasn't how it was going to look back in old Chicago. No, what old Chicago was going to see was the destruction of four battlecruisers and whatever ass-covering version of events Teela Kanan turned in. She'd lay it all off on him in her report, he could see that already, and McCartney would throw him out of the air car at 5,000 meters to keep any of this from spattering Frontier Security's upper echelons. Give it up, that little voice said. Give it up before it gets even worse. He wavered, but then he clenched his jaw and stiffened his spine. That was the kind of voice losers listened to the kind of voice that ended with a man's career shuffled off forever into meaningless, dead-end assignments. What he needed was to demonstrate resolve, to show that, no matter what the odds, 
he recognized the need to uphold the Solarian League's authority. Dubrovskaya might have let herself be defeated by five stinking little light cruisers, and Teela Kanan might let herself be panicked into forgetting her responsibilities, forgetting that OFS's ability to do its job depended on facing down upstarts like the Star Empire of Manticore when they got above themselves, but Damian Duenas wasn't going to forget. It may be that this Manticorean butcher is a big enough lunatic to attack civilians under the Office of Frontier Security's protection, he said coldly. The Solarian League's made its position on this sort of action very plain, however, Lieutenant Governor Tilikainen. We do not bargain with, and we do not make concessions to, neobarbs who threaten or even commit acts of terroristic violence against us or against the civilians we're charged to protect. You know as well as I do that that's been League policy for over two T-centuries. You're even crazier than Zavala. Tila came and shook her head. Look around you, Damien. What the hell are you going to use to stop him from doing whatever he wants? Maybe I won't be able to stop him. Duenya said, settling back in the comfortable chair behind his huge desk and squaring his shoulders resolutely. But unlike some people, I'm going to do my job. If he chooses to push this still further, then any additional consequences will be his responsibility, not anyone else's. I'll go far enough to agree to ask for instructions from higher authority, but that's as far as I'll bend. Anything else would be a violation of standing policy— as well as an act of object cowardice. Teela Kanan looked at him for a long moment. Then she shook her head again. There was something almost like pity under the anger in her eyes, and a lot more of something that looked a great deal like contempt to keep it company. You may think you'll be able to sell that to the ministry, she said finally. You may even think you'll be able to sell it to the Newsies as a way to keep McCartney from hammering you for this. But you're wrong. You won't be able to, and it won't save you. The only thing you're going to manage is to get still more people killed. The last four words came out with a slow, measured emphasis, and her eyes were deadly. You may be going to take my career down the toilet with you, and I can't stop you from doing that. But I, for one, refuse to be responsible for still more death and destruction. You do whatever you want to, Governor. I'm out of here. She turned on her heel and stalked out, slamming the old-fashioned door behind her, and a scalding tide of fury darkened Duenas's face. He came halfway to his feet, mouth opening to order her back into his office, but he stopped himself in time. She obviously wouldn't obey him and there was no point letting her make her defiance even clearer. Besides, he could use this when it was time for him to write his report. Evidence of still more disloyalty, cowardice, and incompetence from his subordinates would only underscore his own determination and refusal to yield to a homicidal maniac's demands. He settled back into his chair and inhaled deeply. Then he closed his eyes for a moment, willing his temper back under control, commanding himself to focus. When he was confident he had himself back in hand, he opened his eyes once more and looked at Kodu's holographic image. Put Captain Zavala through, Moxens, he said coldly.
That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 18, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Danielle Turner, Christopher Safani, and composer Ruth Judkowitz. Corvallian bows of gratitude for steadfastness during hard times to Leaden Universe creators Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> <laughs>